Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hello everybody and welcome to Scattered. This week we are looking at Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11. So far in Colossians we've got Paul writing to a church that he's actually never been to, he's never met them but he is regarded as as their um, spiritual father and this is a church that is experiencing quite a lot of false teaching and last week we saw that um, some of that false teaching involved requirements or qualifications for salvation so saying things like you need to eat certain things or experience certain things before you can say that you're a Christian Um, and Paul was speaking against that and today we are looking at chapter three the first section so can somebody just summarize for me uh, the section that we're looking at today I guess the first four verses are Paul encouraging us to be heavenly minded and to keep our hearts and our minds fixed on Jesus. And then the second paragraph, verses 5 to 11, is, I guess, all about how that, um, I guess the theological description for the first few verses would be our union with Christ, that we're united to Jesus, and how that then impacts our union with other people within a congregation or within a local church. So, yeah, the first half focuses on um, and encourages us to remember that we're united with Jesus. And then the second part is helping us put that into practice. Let's look at these first four verses then. Um, Here, Paul mentions a few things about Jesus. Why in particular? I mean, there's quite a few things, isn't there? But why in particular does he mention where Jesus is sitting? Why is that relevant to anything? Well, I guess there's definitely the sitting part is a sign that he's a he's finished his work, isn't it? And so the fact that Jesus is sitting is um, another reminder to our hearts that the job he came to do has been done and it's completed. Um, and then the fact that he's at the right hand of God is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Hermione is, um, the position of authority. And so he's completed his work and he's now ruling and reigning. Yeah, and I think later on there's reference to him judging. And so I guess he, in his position of authority, is not only has his work been accomplished and he's risen and reigning over all, but he's one day going to judge as well. And so that's quite a real thing to remember. Yeah, and he and he's not just sitting at the right hand of someone, is he? He's sitting at the right hand of God. Like that's a huge place of authority I think David mentions the Lord sitting at the right hand of God in the Psalms I think and so I'm 110 I think you'll find (laughs) right Hermione three I don't want it I don't want the title (laughs) oh and so it's not just that he's sort of somewhere abstractly in the sky the reality is he's sitting at the right hand of God with God as sort of a co-ruler of this creation and this world um, that he not only created, but also is sustaining. And I think it's incredible that this statement, if then you have been raised with Christ, because, you know, we haven't died yet, yet we have been raised with him. So our position before him is so different to what it was before. 
you know, we're not just waiting for this day when we will be raised, but actually right now we have been raised with him. And so that gives us those implications that come afterwards from verse two to four. That's that's the encouragement to us to set our minds not on things here, but on things above. Yeah, we had baptisms on Sunday, on Easter Sunday at church, and it was so, it's such a lovely picture, isn't it, of that being raised from the water. And on Easter mm. Sunday as well, it was really precious remembering that because he's been raised, we are raised um, by faith. And yeah, it's, yeah, so really... But it's not something that we, reg- well, for me, it's not something I regularly think about and meditate on. And it's so helpful, isn't it, in these verses to be reminded that these are the things that we need to be thinking about regularly um, if we're going to live differently, because these are the truths of who we are. Yeah, mm. I think the concept of keeping your mind on things above is interesting, isn't it? Because most of the time our false thoughts, our wrong thoughts or our wrong view of God or the wrong view of ourselves usually come when we start thinking from a an earthly viewpoint and we try to raise ourselves up into heaven. And the difference here is that um, Paul starts up on high with Christ in heaven and then looks to how that works itself out on earth. And I think, you know, as we think about keeping our minds on things above, it's easy, isn't it, to start feeling like we're super philosophical or lofty and or um, like it almost sounds like we need to stop caring about things on earth. But that's not what Paul's saying, because we need to remember that Jesus was the most heavenly minded person who ever lived. And yet he died for the world. It's not that the world is irrelevant. He 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 sweated and he healed and bled for this world. But the concept is be in. I mean, I hate this phrase, but be in this world, but not of this world. Keep in mind um, Jesus at the right hand of God and how he got there and why he's there. Yeah. And the other thing I found helpful thinking about that was it's another call to relationship, isn't it? It's reminding us that the privilege that we have as being God's children, that we're united with Jesus and therefore in relationship with God. And so actually setting your mind there and remembering that privilege is a constant call, isn't it? To be prayerful and to be developing that relationship with Jesus. That's another, that would be another way of saying, wouldn't it? Um, Set your minds on things above or seek the things that are above. It's remembering that um, we can bring things to Jesus and actually we're called into relationship with him yeah and as we reflect on that relationship with Jesus reflecting that it is incredible because he he's not just above so he's not just in the sky he is above space (laughs) he's he's above the stars he's above all creation and that includes the universe and yet this is the the person that we can have a personal relationship with this person who died for us and I guess as well he's above isn't he the really hard circumstances that we find ourselves in and like we said right at the beginning he's authority he's he's completed his salvation work and he's reigning authoritatively as a cult with God and so actually the circumstances that feel so big and the really hard things that we wrestle with you know whatever that's been for us in this week it's so helpful, isn't it, to remember that he's 
over that and in control of that. And it, it changes our um, anxiety, doesn't it? Or how we feel when we keep reminding ourselves of that. Let's quickly look at verse three. Uh, a minute ago, uh, Juliet, you said, you know, we haven't died yet. And yet verse three says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So uh, although we are not dead yet, what is Paul saying here then? Mm. Yeah, he's speaking very much in a, uh, I guess, spiritually, we have died because we have died. I think we saw that last week um, that we have died with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. So, and again, this week, you know, it reminds us that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ and God. So actually, spiritually, um, all our sins have died with him. Um, All that could hold us against God, all that could accuse us has been put to death. And so actually we don't need to be thinking in the terms of last week you know when we were trying to think oh how do what do I need to do what's the checklist to be a good person and fall into the trap of legalism but actually because of what Christ has done he's set us free so that we can actually live our lives in this new reality of being risen with him and no longer I guess a slave to uh, the sins that held us before but free um yeah and that that life looks so different doesn't it I find the second half of verse three really helpful this week because I've been just fighting a little bit of discouragement and just that reminder that um this life is at some level hidden in that we don't always see the full fruit of that um, glorious truth of Jesus being exalted and reigning. Um, And, you know, it's hard, isn't it, when you're working hard in ministry and you don't always see the fruit that you'd want to, or it just looks really ordinary. And my heart's been really struggling with that this week. So I just found this so helpful that right here is, actually, we... We have to expect that part of that glory is hidden in this life and at this point in salvation history, that um, there's a hidden nature to that glorious reality that isn't as visible as we'd like it to be at times. Yeah, and it's that's the thing, isn't it? I think when you look at verse 3, you have to look at verse 4 as well. You know, verse 3, your life in Christ is not on fully display. It's not fully on display now. You are still sinning. There is still badness in the world. Um, and yet, verse 4, Christ will come back and you will appear with him in glory. That is the reality of our lives. The now we are saved yes we are in Christ and yet we don't yet it's the not yet we don't fully get to enjoy that but we can be assured that even though it's hidden it is there yeah mm. and, and it's coming isn't it that one day it will be clear and one day there'll be a, a revelation for everybody to see of who Jesus is um so yeah I, I think you're right Helen verse four is really encouraging isn't it that it's not always going to remain hidden and I guess also I just, the, verses three and four are an explanation, aren't they? Like we're given instructions in verse one and two, and then verse three and four are explaining how, why why should we set our minds on 
Christ? Why do we need to be told that and reminded of that? And to and to almost keep that mentally working hard to do that, it's because there's coming a day when it will all be clear, but at the moment there's a hidden nature to our salvation. Hmm. And we are so um, intimately bound to Christ, isn't it? Like the whole fact that our lives are with Christ and in Christ and um, which means, you know, when we do sin and when we do, when we do face that guilt, we almost can immediately experience God's grace because what, of what Christ has done for the price that he has paid that our lives, you know, I guess whenever we get the, the accusation, oh, you know, look how badly you've done, that you can say, yes, and that's why Christ's price was so big, so great. And um, just that reminder that we're united to him in his death and also praise God that we're united to him in his resurrection. Yeah, it's just remembering that thing, isn't it, at the beginning of verse 3, for you have died. It's, in, it's not a physical death, but our, our old self has been put to death and we are being renewed from the inside by the Holy Spirit. Um, just, and, and that grace is available to us, like you said, Juliet, instantly, day after day. I think we can certainly regret sin and we can... Um, you know, we need to fight it, but it's that lack of condemnation because we have died. The old self is dead and the new has come. Um, and that gives us, I think, hope and strength to keep fighting, fighting sin. Yeah. And the more we set our minds on those heavenly truths, the more it enables us, doesn't it, to die, to, to actually put that sinful nature to death. Um I listened to a really helpful talk on this, these first four verses, and he was just saying, you know, we should be praying regularly, shouldn't we? Lord, give me a heavenly mindset that thinks about these things more than the daily struggles of this world. But then he was also saying, actually, it's a conscious choice, isn't it, to make sure that day by day we remember these truths about who Jesus is and what he's done. And then the thing that really challenged me was his practical encouragement was, why don't you consciously be giving things away that are precious to you on this earth as a way to keep reminding your heart, your flesh, your whole being that this world isn't where the real action lies. And I just thought, oh, that's so helpful, isn't it? And I was talking with my kids about it and how we're okay at giving away things that aren't very precious to us or things that are spare, but actually choosing to give away things that are precious in this world is such a good discipline, isn't it, to cultivate a, well, we're doing this because this world isn't where our hope is. Um, so, yeah, that was that was really helpful for my heart. And, yeah, we've had some um, interesting family conversations around that. <laughs> Um, I have, but just before we move on, I have one last question on verse four, just because I think there's quite a lot of what I would call Christianese in these four verses. And I just want to make it clear to people, what does it mean when Christ, who is your life, appears? Well, I think it links, doesn't it, to the first three, that our fleshly nature has died. And so actually our spiritual nature is, um, we only have that because of Jesus. 
So we're united to Jesus and God looks on us as in Jesus. Is that what it means, Helen? You tell me. <laughs> yeah, I think in verse one, isn't it, that um, that we have been raised with Christ. And the, so that speaks to our new life. But then one day Christ is coming back. It's, it does, I, <laughs> I read that, you know, that when he appears, that we will also appear with him in glory. So making reference to his return. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I th- sorry. I wasn't asking the question to trick you up. I was just thinking, as I was reading it, I was like, what does that even mean? I think that often we can read these things and be like, oh, yeah, that's confusing. I'll just leave it. But actually, what does it mean to um, when Christ, who is your life, appears? And it, I, I don't have an answer, really. I was... Uh, wondering what you thought but also it made me think of um Philippians uh, chapter 1 verse 21 you know to live is Christ to die is gain I just think that whole if your life is orientated around him and if you have been raised with him and your life is hidden with Christ in God or in Christ with God whichever way it is Christ will be your life there is no there is no other option and so, and Christ, when you believe in him, Christ is where your spiritual life comes from, where your spiritual giving, um, where your spiritual being comes from. It, it, it's everything. It's your life force flows from him. And so when he appears, there is a certainty that you will also appear with him in glory because you are so wrapped up in each other, you know. And something I found really helpful reading about this this week was actually that fact that we're united to Jesus is actually, this lady described it as the internal unchanging reality of our lives. You know, our circumstances come and go, our circumstances change all the time, don't they? But that's the eternal unchanging truth that we're united to Jesus and therefore all that is his is ours. And it, like that is really something to set your mind on, isn't it? And to meditate on because it does change everything. It, it's mm. massive. Yeah, it reminded me of um, just because um, Easter's just come and gone. The reminder of the man on the cross next to Christ who said to Jesus, remember me. And Jesus replied, you know, today you will appear with me in glory or something like that. And just the whole security and the whole intertwined nature of Christ's death and his raising to life that he could offer to this man um, such a sure hope. Um, And that's the same kind of sure hope that we have. That's really helpful, guys. Thanks. So now let's look at this section um, 5 to 11, because it starts with, uh, well, put to death, therefore. So because of verses 1 to 4, what does Paul uh, call us to do? I guess one way to look at it would be, once you've seen what Jesus has done, once you've seen how lovely Jesus is, once you've seen the privileges that are yours because you're in him, then get rid of the filthy mess in your life, basically. Um, mm. But it's really important, isn't it, I think, that we see that it's that that comes first, the looking long and hard at Jesus comes first, and then it, it flows out of that, doesn't it? A, a change in our life is a is in gratitude, really, and as it's a gratefulness for what who Jesus is and what he's done. 
Mm. Yeah, it's like saying, like, look at what it cost Christ to save you from your sins. And then why do you run back towards them? You know, he's paid such a a huge price um, to rescue you. It's like, you know, you set free from you've been set free from prison, yet you like want to run back and like eat that terrible food and stay trapped in that terrible cell when like the freedom of a beautiful land is promised to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I as I was reading about this, I read that the verb um, that's used put to death isn't like a um, it's not a controlling verb. It's not meaning suppression or anything like that. It is used more to represent to wipe out or totally exterminate anything in our lives that is contrary to our um, oneship with Jesus, to our identity with Jesus, and that we should consider those sins dead to us and us to be dead to them. I thought Paul was, well, he's clever, isn't he? But the way he sort of motivates us towards holiness. So in verse 4, we, um, we have the carrot, don't we, of one day you're going to appear with Jesus in glory and you're going to be like him. And so come on, like live like that. So that's like the positive incentive. But then on, in verse six, after the list of things we need to run away from, we're, there's a reminder, isn't there, that judgment's coming and actually mm. God's um, going to judge these things and they're not acceptable in his sight. But I just thought that was a really, we need both those things, don't we, to help us change. We need to remember that we're going to appear with Jesus in glory, but also there's a judgment coming. And it and it leaves us um, not free to, like, judge our brothers and sisters as well, because he says, you know, in these two, you two once walked, kind of saying, like, we all walked in these things and we've all been set free from these things and so you know it's i think sometimes um the visible obvious sins are the ones um communities can point out but actually you know we all have um hearts that are tempted to um go towards these earthly things yeah, and I think verse seven is important, isn't it? Because he says, in these you two once walked. So it is in the past. And yet we all still struggle with these sins. And I think the way you can hold um, hold that intention is recognising that Christians would not be comfortable. Like if Jesus is really a part of your life, you would not be comfortable with this habitual sin. Things still happen, but if you're still walking in that sin, then that's a serious problem. And I guess that that's as well, isn't it, why the first few verses of the chapter are there, because seeking Jesus and killing sin go together, don't they? In that they, they, they can't coexist in the same heart very easily. And so if you're seeking after Jesus and setting your mind on him, then you are going to be killing sin because they don't, and it's interesting, isn't it? I think if, we, if we're honest and look at our lives, when we aren't seeking the Lord, then, that, then that's when sin creeps up on us, doesn't it? And, um, yeah, captures us. Why do you think he, um, Paul splits? He's almost got two sections of sins here, hasn't he? He's got 
uh, verse 5, where he talks about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And then in verse 8, he says, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. What do you think about that splitting? The second list, to me, seemed more to do with our speech, well, speech at some level, in that almost what it, it felt like a progression did that second list of if you allow anger to fester in your heart, then that just takes you into malice, slander and obscene talk. And so, yeah, I found that second list really helpful in almost the roots of really unhelpful speech or when we allow um, anger or just seeds of those things to take a root in our heart. I think in verse five, those are sins that we would all agree are terrible. You know, um, fornication being sex outside of marriage, impurity is misuse of sex, um, covetousness is, you know, you sat- when you satisfy your own desires and others are wronged. I think that on the whole, people would agree that those are um, sins definitely to be avoided. But I think the second lot of sins that he lists in verse eight are almost incredibly insidious, aren't they? You know, you can justify yourself to your anger. Well, they did this thing and therefore I have a right to be angry or, um, you know, do not lie to one another. How easily lies can slip from our tongues and we can justify them. Oh, I'm just doing it to make them feel better or I didn't want this to happen. It's almost like a these are sins that, that are a serious problem in verse five. And then these are sins in verse eight that are equally a problem. And account of these sins, the wrath of God is still coming, but these are things that you still, that are unjustifiable. You, you still need to fight these and they're not minor. Whereas I think sometimes we can relegate, relegate them in our minds. I read a brilliant quote that said, when a surge of anger is felt, it should be put out as the alien intruder it is and turned out as having no right to be there at all, let alone giving orders. I thought that's so true, isn't it? You know, how often in a day I feel anger and yet I allow it to give me orders. But I I also think, I've been challenged this week in a couple of conversations I've had, that that first list... um, are just are less and less objectively wrong in our society, aren't they? You know, I I just think it's um, cr- yeah, Christian sexual morality is just increasingly at odds, isn't it, with the whole of our society? Um, and I yeah, I was just challenged at how creep you know because the me- it just it creeps in, doesn't it? Those that first list, which I agree, we we would all say. Those are awful things, but it just creeps into our subconscious because it's so acceptable in society. And so I, I think actually there's a big, we've got to fight hard, haven't we, that those those things don't creep in as acceptable. Yeah, I guess within the church, there's two elements to it, isn't there? Because Paul is writing to a church here. It's let's not be so absorbed by our society and our surrounding culture. Let's keep our minds on things above so that we don't allow these things to seep into our consciousness. But there's also the other end of things. Don't um, elevate some sins to be worse than others. Don't, you know, that legalism. Oh, you're only struggling with anger. Oh, you're okay. Oh, you have an issue with covetousness. You're worse. 
that sort of legalism yeah, aspect Jesus was it. really good wasn't it on the heart you know it's the heart that you've got to deal with and I just think the danger in churches is that we look at the exter the things that we can judge externally yeah. we think are worse don't we but Jesus was so challenging wasn't he in the Sermon on the Mount on actually it's your heart attitude that I see and I want to change what else in this section struck you I I really loved the last few verses about the the fact that there's a there can be a real unity in a church when Christ is central. And so all those different groups of people that in the past would have stood opposed to each other, when our minds are set on Jesus and when we're fixed and our relationship with him is central, then the religious, the cultural, the financial, the economic barriers just fall away because Jesus is the central one. So yeah, I mm. I, I love that the the last verse all about um, the unity that ch- the church can experience. Yeah, because there there's that little section in verse eleven. You know, he keeps talking about opposites, doesn't he? Jews who have a covenant privilege versus Greeks who are um, Gentiles, people who didn't get to who weren't officially, you know, God's people. You've got the circumcised. And the uncircumcised, you've got the barbarians who were seen as sort of foreigners and foolish. The Scythians, I don't know. I'm sure somebody who knows northern that, northern Greece. That was a group, a group of people in northern Greece that were seen as not very um, clever. Yeah, so they were sort of seen as the um, embodiment of unrefinedness oh, and sure. savagery. Little worse, little better than wild beasts is what I read. Sophisticated, yeah. <laughs> And then slave and free, so the opposite ends of the economic spectrum as well. Um, just, you know, Christ is the great leveller, but he's the great leveller-upper in some ways. You know, in Christ we are all one. In Christ we will all be in glory. Um, mm. and, I, and I love this, the thought as well that, you know, just because these people, these groups of people became Christians doesn't mean that they necessarily stopped being who they were. Um, You know, you don't lose your cultural identity as you take up your new identity in Christ. I think this is a huge deal for people working um, abroad, particularly for, you know, where I used to work in Uganda, to become Christian was to become non-Karamajong. Um, and so it was. That was a really hard thing to work through with people. Um, but the best way I could describe it is, if I had stopped being English when I became a Christian, it would have reduced Jesus to like a tribal deity. He is above that and over that, um, and helping people see that you don't lose one part of you. Actually, you gain so much more. And. And so, and then this section ends, but by saying, but Christ is all and in all. I don't know what you guys found to what, what those two different phrases meant. I guess Christ is all, does that, I I interpreted that to refer back to his authority, his rule and reign, but then the in all is that reminder of, yet he's intensely personal and within us and we're united to him so and I guess those two things create unity don't they between different groups of people who believe 
both those things and experience that reality of Christ in them. And that flows really well because um, in verse 10, isn't it, that um, that we've been, we are put, to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So that Christ is all, that our knowledge of who Christ is, is helping us be renewed and also um, being united to our brothers and sisters. Yeah, and I guess we're, we're moving into this next week, aren't we? But almost whilst we're all different, there there is like a uniform, isn't there? We have to take off the dirty clothes of this section and then next week we'll look at the clothes that we put on <coughs> as members of God's family. Yeah, you're right. So uh, stay tuned for next week. Uh, thanks very much, ladies, and see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.